You are listening to the British Motocross Show. Welcome to the British Motocross Show. I'm James Burfield, and with me today, I have someone very special in the studio. I'm very excited about this because uh, it's somebody I followed through my um, schoolboy career. This guy not only finished second in some of the races at the 500C World Motocross Championship, but actually finished ninth overall. In a time when there was Gabors, Jobe, Mauher, Port, uh, Nickel, the list goes on. You know, he, he rode against the very best and beat some of the very best. He also represented Great Britain in the Motocross of Nations, or MXDN as it was back then. I have the, the fantastic Rob Andrews. Well, thank you very much, James. It's, <laughs> it's great to be here. What a setup you got. Really looking forward to this. And uh, yeah, fire some questions at me. Great. So uh, today's podcast is brought to you by Talon. And uh, Talon Wheels produce some fantastic wheels. They produce wheels for over 30 years, hubs, rims, spokes, clutch baskets, sprockets, you name it. Talon's been there throughout the nine years of MX Vice's uh, history, supporting us. Um, one of the only British companies to, to be there literally every year for us. So thanks ever so much to Rob and the team for the continued support of MX Vice. Rob, the one thing which uh, people probably don't know is that I've mentioned it a couple of times on the show, but obviously I was a big fan of you uh, sort of growing up. And also, uh, you're the only person to ever give me a motocross shirt. I asked lots of people around the, the pits. I wasn't like sort of going around the pits asking everybody for a motocross shirt, but I think it's in Farley Castle, probably 1988, 87, 88, I think it was. The M. Robert Team Green Kawasaki shirt. I can remember, I don't think you had the best of days. A little bit frustrated on track, if I remember rightly. And uh, I went up to you and with all my courage, my mum kind of pushed me forward. And I was quite shy at the time and said, oh, uh, could I, is it possible I could have one of your shirts, Bob? And you said, I'm very, very sorry, but I don't have any shirts on me. But if you give me your name and address, I will send you one. And I was thinking, okay, may, maybe in like another year or whatever. And to my surprise, I think it was probably a month later, through the post, was a brand new Team Green M. Robert shirt. And uh, I know like when a kid gets a shirt nowadays, I don't know if they really understand the value of it. But back then, there wasn't that many people what had sublimation printed Andrews actually in their, 
in their shirt. I mean, today you kind of take it for granted. But back then, these shirts were were absolutely fantastic, the M. Robert Team Green ones. It was nice kit that year. We always thought it it kind of looked like we were wearing two pairs of shorts over a pair of jogging bottoms. With the, with the, <laughs> the design of that. Um, but it was good kit. Uh, used to get asked a, a lot for shirts. you know, And some kids, uh, or, or adults even, would come up at the beginning of the season and say, can I have one of your shirts? And I never had that many shirts. You know, I started off with like seven or eight for the year. So you couldn't start giving them out in March. And so it's, it's good that you remembered that I said, give me your, your details. Because what I would do is I would, I would sort of take note of who the most polite, deserving recipients of these were. And I would take their uh, name and address and send it out at the end of the year to the, the most deserving one. And the listeners need to know the, the postscript to this story in that uh, James had one of my shirts in 1988. And then he contacted me a few years ago and told me this story that I probably didn't remember this, but I gave him one of my jerseys in 1988. And James had said that he'd treasured this jersey, kept it for 30 years, but that now it was time to send it back to its original owner. And so James sent me that jersey back, which I was very grateful about because it was in great condition and I didn't have many jerseys from back then. I got like a couple of jerseys from a racing career. So, so to receive that jersey back, James, was fantastic. Thank you very much. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, it was uh, my pride and joy. I think I rode it once uh, for good luck. I think it was probably in the BSMA National because I had a 1988 KX100 at the time. I think I rode it in one of the BSMA Nationals and then realized that it was too good to wear again. So um, it stayed in the, it hung up in a wardrobe for possibly uh, 20 or 30 years with all my other little bits and pieces of memorabilia. But um, one, you know, obviously we're here today because uh, it's a great opportunity to talk to you. You've just written a fantastic book, uh, The Inside Line, which is a story about obviously your time in motocross, but it's so much more. For me, it gives the reader a really good understanding about those amazing years in the 80s, which were really are the, the iconic, legendary days of motocross, without a doubt. Whether we'll see those days again, I don't know. But I think we'll always see adaptations or different versions of them um, over the next you know, decades. One of the things which I found quite inspiring was how you got into motocross in the first place, because it wasn't a case of you being six years old and motocross was in your family. I find this just fantastic. Right at the start of the book, you kind of talk about the usual kid fishing, playing football and everything else. And then one day you went to, ended up at, is it Lay Farm? It was Lay Farm. Let me just add something in before that, because there might be some of your listeners out there that they go, Rob Andrews, never heard of him. I raced in the 500 GPs back in the 80s, as, as some of you may know, raced for Britain in the motocross donations. Um, a long time ago, but if you're of a certain age, if you're under 40, you'd be fully forgiven for not uh, recognizing my name. But I think the key thing with this, with the book and, and my career is that I, I wasn't born into a motocross family. I, I, I wasn't a, a prodigy, the next big thing. I didn't shoot straight to the top. I was an ordinary guy, just like you were explaining before we went on air about how you started, James. And, uh, uh, but, but somehow I just kept on going and ended up at that. Uh, at that level. So my book kind of traces that that journey. It isn't a story about, well, here's a motocross star. It's a story about here's how an ordinary guy got there and the really cool and interesting things that happened along the way. And one of the interesting things is how I first discovered motorcycles in the first place. Um, because I wasn't into motorcycles in any way. I knew of a, of a Norton Commando. I think that, that was about the only bike I knew of. Um, and as you just described, one day, my friend and I, we were 
deciding what to do in the summer holidays. We've been playing football. We were deciding what we're going to do next. Bored, you know, 13-year-old kids. We decided to go on a bike ride. Uh, and we went to a, a place called Lay Farm uh, near Tewkesbury. Next to Lay Farm was a, a common called Brockridge Common, which had lots of natural hills and hollows. And it was really fun to ride through on a push bike. Never related this to motocross because I didn't even know motocross existed. But we'd been there on a number of occasions because it was just fun to, to ride our bikes around there. And this particular day, my friend Jeff and I, we turned up there to this derelict farm. And it wasn't derelict or it wasn't deserted this time. There were a whole load of motorcycles going around. And what we discovered, uh, we sort of gingerly went up and asked one of the, the adults there what was going on because we were worried that we were trespassing. And they explained that this was a, a kids' display team, a youth display team known as the Imps. And this was their summer um, base in, in the summer holidays. So they were a display team. They used to do um, shows like the Edinburgh Tattoo and that sort of thing, formation riding, jumping through rings of fire, that sort of stuff. But they were kids riding motorcycles. And I can remember there was a, they were all Hondas. They had little Honda XR75s. They had uh, Honda 125s. They were all four strokes. Um, but we never even knew that kids of our age could, and younger could ride motorcycles. So we were just transfixed by watching these kids go around. Um, and that was, the, that was the moment that I thought, I want to ride motorcycles. And the organizers there, they even arranged for a pillion ride uh, on the back of one of these bikes. And the, this lad took us around the track. It wasn't a motocross track. It was a field behind the farm. And he took us around. And that was it. We were hooked. Um, and I so wanted to join that display team, and so did my friend Jeff. And we went back the next week, because we mentioned this to the organizers, and they said, yeah, we're here all summer, come back and see us. We went back there the next weekend, and they weren't there. The place was deserted, um, and it was the summer holiday, so we then went back in the, in the week, every couple of days in the week, to see if we could find the imps again. They'd gone. Next weekend, nobody there, and we never saw them again. I was convinced that I was going to go back the following week and join that display team, and that would be the start of my motorcycle riding career, and it never happened. We were so disappointed. But that was how I got into motorcycles, and that led me to buying myself a little field bike, uh, and I used to ride around, that around the fields, and then by chance I um, met somebody um, at a local motorcycle shop whose son did schoolboy scrambling. He took me to a Seven Valley race, um, and that was it. I was off on my motocross career. Uh, and I'd kind of forgotten about this imp story. And it was a long time ago. This was 1976. When people used to say to me, how did you get into motorcycles? I'd say, well, it's because I met the Goddard family and they took me to a Seven Valley race and it went from there. But it, but it wasn't. The actual interest in bikes themselves, you can trace back a little bit further. But I'd forgotten about it. And then a few years ago on Facebook, this lay farm place cropped up on a, a group uh, discussing old I think it's Cotswold schoolboy races from the, from the 70s, and it mentioned Lay Farm. Now, Lay Farm, when I knew it, wasn't a motocross track, but purely by coincidence, about 10, year, 10 or 15 years after my encounter with the Imps, they did hold some races there in a different field, so it became a motocross track. And so on this Facebook group, some of the guys were discussing their memories of this, this track at Lay Farm, but that made me remember the Imps. And so I thought, I wonder whether the Imps are still going 40 years later. I Googled the imps, see if I could find, actually, no, I didn't think, are they still going? I thought, I wonder if I can find some old photos of the imps. And so I Googled the imps and up came a website. And I thought, wow, they're still going. And I looked on this website and there was a contact email. And I sent a, an email to the imps saying, 
this sounds like a crazy question, but is there anybody there that would have been involved 40 years ago, back in 1976? And within 10 minutes, I got an email back from a guy called Roy Pratt, MBE, that said to me, yeah, I was involved in it. I started it back then. I was running it back in the 70s, and I'm still running it today. Um, how can I help you? So I recounted this story of how Jeff and I cycled up there one day, encountered the imps, and that, that led me to starting motocross and ended up being quite successful at it, raced for Great Britain and raced in the World Championship and so on. And Roy said, yeah, we remember you. <laughs> it was just unbelievable. He said, the reason we remember you is because it was a remote farm and we didn't have visitors. So we remember two young boys coming up in 1976. And we, I even remember the name of the lad who gave you the pillion ride. So I was just blown away that 40 years later, this guy should, uh, should remember that chance encounter that led, in my case, to an entire career in motocross. I think there's obviously many parts of the book which um, I like, probably, and everybody else has got their, their, their choice of, of chapters and parts of your career that is going to stand out and it means something to them. But I think for me, it's, I believe in uh, if you really want something in life and if you really kind of uh, put your mind to it, I think, I don't know whether it was Roger Harvey, I don't know, but the thing which always was, was put, put into my head was what the mind believes the body will achieve. So if you, if you kind of fixate on something and you focus on something, and I think not only does that kind of ring true in, in this, but also there's certain ripples in life which um, happen. And you kind of having that pillion ride, and you could have stood at the side of the fence or maybe not gone there that day. But these little things of maybe you would have got to a motocross eventually. However, I mean, it's just these little ripples in life which um, happen. And I think this is quite, uh, although it's, it's quite, you know, very much at the start of your book, I still find it quite fascinating. How something like that can happen. I, I'm amazed by it as well because, you know, it's a junction in life. And had Jeff and I decided we're going to go fishing, no, I can't be bothered to go on a bike ride, it wouldn't have happened. My entire life would have been different. I wouldn't have discovered motorcycles that day. Who knows? I, I, I don't know what I would have done. And there's lots of instances like that for, for everybody through life where just a, a chance meeting leads you to meeting your partner or, or get a different job and your whole life moves in a different direction. And, and when I was a 13-year-old kid, if we'd have decided to play football instead of going on the bike ride, I wouldn't be sat here today talking to you. No. Crazy, huh? Yeah, it's cr uh, yeah. and this is what I love about life. It's, you never know what's going to happen, especially from this day forward. The, the one thing which did surprise me in the book was obviously I got to know you through motocross in the 80s so obviously as you mentioned you were an ever-present in the, the 500 GPs you obviously came through the ranks and as a young kid that's what I seen you I seen you riding at that level which let's face it there's not been and I'm not here to blow smoke up your arse or anything um, Rob but I think we, we have a, a common uh, appreciation for each other however the fact that you had to contend with Gabor's Joe, Malherb, Thorpe, and Carlquist, some of the best riders that have ever graced a motorcycle, and, and you've had to race against them. You, know, you couldn't have picked a worse time to um, actually compete. Yeah. But I fully expected when I picked up the book to hear about how you dominated schoolboys and how when you first got on a bike, you were just a natural to it. I was really, really surprised to read that it wasn't. Just no, so it, it was like hard that. work. It, it, it was, but I was nothing special. Um, you know, I guess if people, 
people who got to know me through the GPs would go to a GP and say, well, there's a guy riding against Malherb and Thorpe and so on, um, you know, and occasionally beating them as well. But I, I didn't shoot straight up there. I, I, I just started like everybody starts, just because you love riding a motorcycle. You know, the excitement that I remember when I first started schoolboys, that was just amazing thinking, you know, four days now until we go to another race, three days now until we go to another race. And just that joy of, of riding the bike. And that's all I cared about. I didn't have any aspirations of success when I first started. You just do it for the fun. And then I gradually got a little bit better in the schoolboys. And I think my, my second year, I ended up moving to race up in the in the West Midlands rather than the Seven Valley in Cotswold because it was a little bit easier. My dad thought, well, I might be able to win a trophy. That was nothing special, mm -hmm. but just gradually got a little bit better. My last year in the schoolboys, I was maybe in the top 10 in the country, but I didn't win anything. And then when I went in the adults, I was very unremarkable. Back then we had the, the British Championship and the support series that ran as the undercard to that. And uh, it, it took me three years to get out of the support championship. You know, I was one of those riders that in today's motocross would have completely missed the boat because I, I, I was never a hot prospect, but I just kept working at it. And not because I thought, right, I'm going to be world champion here, just because I thought I enjoy this sport. I'm becoming quite good at it and I want to see how good I can get. And so I always strive to, to, to work hard at it and try my hardest to, to try and be the best that I could be. And when I was in the British Support Championship and finishing 17th or whatever, which equated to, I don't know, 50th in the country, I was thinking, oh, that's fantastic. I'm 50th in the country. I wanted to do better next year. And I just kept getting slowly better, just through hard work and determination. And eventually, I got up in the top 35 and ended up in GPs. But it was a very slow process. Yeah. As mentioned, that was my biggest surprise. I kind of expected to pick it up and you dominated schoolboy motocross, but you actually came into it quite, quite late. Was it 13, 14? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, 77. So I'd have been just 14, just about to turn 15 when I first started. So I didn't start racing at, at six. My dad never raced. I didn't know anybody that raced. Um, so I was late to it because a lot of guys like, you know, Thorpe had started at six. Dave Thorpe, he'd started well, probably before that, actually. So they all had a head start on me. Yeah. Um, but I didn't start till I was 15. And I suppose really, when did I go to GPs? Did my first GP in 84. So what was that? Six or seven years seven, later, 21. I was in. Yeah. Yeah. Six or seven years later, uh, I was in GPs. I mean, that's quite similar, I believe, to, is it Joel Schmetz? Joel Schmetz sort of came in a little bit later Joel well. didn't start, I think he was 17. I saw Joel at Hawkstone a couple of weeks ago. Okay. I'd asked him about this. and. Uh, uh, you know, he features in the, the closing chapter of my book because he went on to win five world championships. But when he first went into GPs, we would beat him you, easily. I know. And that's that I found that part very, very interesting. And I think anybody, any, any riders out there from schoolboys or, or, or so on, which are, are kind of listen to this podcast today, this just gives you some insight into about if you apply yourself, this is what you can achieve. Because it's not a case of everybody's been given anything in natural talent and progress. It is about hard work, progression, and the right mental state. Because as you've just mentioned with yourself, you're a prime example to, to anybody that, you know, if you put your mind to it, you can achieve it. And Joel Smith backs that up with, with basically the, the way he rose through yeah. the ranks. Yeah, he, um, he started very late. You know, I think he came from a family that, that didn't have very money. He couldn't race as a schoolboy. But... God, that guy's determined. 
And I think that's the most important thing. I don't consider myself talented. I mean, how, how, how is somebody born talented to ride a motorcycle? It's, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's not a genetic <laughs> yeah, the thing, irony. is it? Yeah. <laughs> we can't thank you know, genetics for that, can we? No. Natural selection. So everybody starts just for fun. And, and I think it is how you apply yourself and also your mental state, your, your drive and determination. And as you've seen in the book, I soon figured out when I started racing schoolboys that I was competitive because up to that point, I didn't consider myself competitive. But I started racing schoolboys just for the fun of it. And then I remember having a, my first finish where I was actually classified, where I didn't fall off like 10 times and finished in 17th or something like that. And, yep. and that just stuck in my mind as, right, Rob, that's 17th. So next week, I want to be 16th or better. I remember it clear as day. Yeah. And I don't know where that came from because I wasn't competitive prior to that. But that 17th place made me think, right. I want to do better than that. And so all through my uh, motocross career, I was just trying to really improve for the, for the personal satisfaction uh, of the reward of, of, of doing the best that you can to get the best that you can be at, at something. And I'm, I'm still like that today, whether it, you know, whatever I do, I, I, I have to, to do my best or I will be dissatisfied with myself. <laughs> I can, uh, I can re- completely relate to that. I think um, it's, it's a good, it's a good trait to have. However, it can obviously be a little bit um It's a curse sometimes. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, is it a good thing to have? Uh, yeah, being competitive and, and driven is a, is a good thing, but it can also um, be a difficult thing. Yeah. If I play any sport at the moment, if, if we went and had a game of squash or tennis or bowls or golf or whatever, I'd want to beat you. Yeah. Um, and when you're, when you're my age and you're down the golf club and, and you're still thinking about things like that, it seems a bit silly because I, I know lots of people that enjoy golf far more than me because they're just happy to enjoy the walk and the social side, but I'll still get annoyed if I don't play well. Yeah. No, and I, but again, that's mentality is what made you, you know, finish ninth in, in the world championship. That's that mentality also got you onto um, the MX, uh, MXDN team. So you know, because again, it's, you want to be the best and also you have to take opportunities when they arise. So, because you know that once you've got that opportunity, you know that what you're personally, you're capable of and possibly what you can achieve. Obviously we're going to talk about the MXDN, which I think I, I find absolutely fascinating. The whole, how you got around to, you know, getting into the MXDN team, but also uh, people will not believe given what they watch today on, on TV and what you had achieved in your times. We're going to talk a little about that a little bit later. So obviously your dad was not your typical schoolboy dad. I'm going, to, I'm going to be honest. He seemed to be at the start very, you know, if you put the money in and if you go out and get a Saturday job and save up your money, um, then I will kind of help you by taking you to the races and, and stuff like that. Was Ron like that throughout your childhood where he would let you kind of lead with it and if you showed commitment, he would support? Or was he, he seemed obviously, he's been there throughout your career and your life. But I was just wondering in the early days, like having that support person around you within motocross, was there good bits for your dad being like that? Or, or would you rather him being more sort of, pushing you or no he, he was the ideal motocross dad you know before motocross came along he i don't remember he him being so supportive of me i don't remember having such a good re- relationship with him. not that we didn't get on but he started spending a lot more time with me when the motocross thing happened i never thought that he would 
he would ever encourage me to go racing. When I first got a, a field bike, I, I saved up and I bought that myself. And, I'd, uh, and then I discovered motocross through this, uh, this friend of mine who took me to a race. But I never even dreamt of asking my dad if I could start racing because it, I, there was no point. <laughs> There's no way that he would... I remember asking him for a snooker table once, a little six-foot snooker table, and I, I couldn't get one of those. So asking him for a motorcycle, <laughs> never, ever going to happen. Yeah. Um, but to my surprise, when I ended up crashing that field bike, he, he knew I'd been to the motocross, and he suggested I should take it up because it was a proper, organized, safer environment. And, and that was it. We were off then. I saved up and bought my first motocross bike. And I think because he saw that I was committed to it, I'd put the time in working two Saturday jobs to get the money and actually buy the bike that, he then agreed to start taking me. But he never raced himself. He didn't know anything about motocross, but it was great to, to have that connection with him. He and my mum would come to schoolboys, and we, we, it just uh, helped us all bond a bit more. Yeah. Um, and they enjoyed it as well. It was a new social experience for them, and my dad was learning as he went along. But I think he, he was a smart guy, my dad, and I think he probably thought, well, I don't know anything about motocross, so who am I to step in and start to tell Rob how to do it? Well, I've got to be honest, one of my favourite photos from the book is your dad sat on a deck chair with one of the first laptops, literally doing a time score. That, for me, told, told me everything. And, and, and I can see, never, I never met your dad. However, I can see that there's similarities about that. Your dad was like, well, if we're going to do this, I'm going to do the best I can by going out and get a laptop and doing time, time scoring. Yeah, as I got better, you know, my, my dad supported me. Obviously, once I, after I bought that first bike, then my dad ended up buying me a bike to race in schoolboys. And so, you know, right up until I was in GPs, he was helping out financially on and off in certain years. So he was committed to it, but he enjoyed it as well. He enjoyed my success. Um, he enjoyed coming with me when I started to do GPs. He, he loved doing that. He used to fly all around the world. Um, you know, we'd be going in the, in the van, but he would fly under his own steam to come out and watch me at the races. And I think he just enjoyed being part of it. Yeah. So when we got into GPs and the lap timing back then was just by stopwatches and pieces of paper, it wasn't a very good system. And he thought, well, well I can probably do something better. So he had one of the first laptops, got a little piece of software to... Uh, to be able to time him. So he'd hit the space bar as, as the rider came past and then put the number in. And then he soon realized that, well, what if six riders come past together? There's not enough time to put the numbers in. And so he had it modified so that he could hit the space bar as many times as he wanted each time a rider went past and then enter the numbers in afterwards. But so it was a great system. The, the one thing which really made me chuckle was the fact that um, obviously everybody cottoned onto your dad doing this. They would all crowd around him. Um, behind him to check out, obviously, what the, the timings were. But then he got the software adapted so that he could blank out anybody other than the British riders' names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was getting pushed <laughs> off his deck chair. You know, nobody knew what, what lap times they were doing. Yeah, you could time your own racer, your own rider. And, you know, some of the factory teams, that they, they would have somebody that might have four stopwatches. So they'd be, they'd be timing Thorpe and Malab and Jabay, but um, So they could compare them to, to each other, but you didn't know where you were in the whole picture. So with my dad sat in the pits with a laptop screen with 40, well, no, qualifications. So it might have been up to 60 riders on that, in that group. Everybody was pushing and shoving to see whether they were, they were in. That was what was frustrating before we had electronic timing. Electronic lap timing came in late 80s. But prior to that, you wouldn't know if you'd qualified until 8 o'clock that night. 
Wow. So you'd be riding around, you know, you, you might know you're on a, a two minutes 14 or something, but you don't know what the qualification cutoff was. You can't time 40 riders yourself. So you wouldn't know. So sometimes we'd be waiting until eight o'clock at night and then you'd find out, oh, didn't make it. Or wow, I was fastest or, or something like that. So when my dad started timing it electronically, everybody was, was pushing and shoving him and he was getting pushed off his deck chair. So that's why he got it modified to, to blank it out. And if someone asked nicely, then he'd reveal all of the positions. That's very cool. And I know I'm kind of like chopping and changing. It's just little things as I'm talking to you. I can just kind of picture these things happening along the way. We're going to stop now for a little break. We're going to listen to some of our advertisers. Once again, really pleased to have these guys on board. So um, if you do get a chance to run their brand, then uh, let them know that you listen to their brand on the MX Vice British podcast show. I'm here with Rob Andrews and we'll be back in five. Talon wheels have been iconic in the industry for over 30 years. Designed, built and manufactured in the UK. Talon wheels, sprockets, footrests and clutch baskets are used by professional riders like Jason Anderson, Zach Osborne and Sean Simpson. Head over to www talon-eng.co.uk for more info. Even Strokes is the newest e-commerce store in motocross. Built by motocross enthusiasts, Even Strokes understands your need and offers all of the products you need for a weekend at the track. Shop now for Yoko, Alpine Stars, Fast House, and more at evenstrokes.com. You are listening to the British Motocross Show. We're back, thanks to our sponsors. I'm James Burfield. In studio, is the one and only Rob Andrews. As mentioned previously, Rob ascended the ranks of motocross during the 70s, 80s, and into the 90s. He uh, is one of the hardest working, in my mind, one of the hardest working riders of that time to literally go from just 14 years old, 13, 14 years old, and growing into the sport and within six, seven years actually riding in a GP. Not many people can say they start the, the sport at sort of 13, 14 years old and then are actually a GP rider seven years later against some of the best names in, in the world that, and, and still legends of the sport and also beating them. So it's really good to have Robin in the studio. It's the inside line racing the 500 CC world motocross championship. The book is absolutely fantastic. Really, really good. I've literally one and a half times through the book at the moment, and I'm probably going to go back and reread it because there are some really uh, good memories for me to kind of look back on and think, ah, I remember that. And I can remember this part and stuff like that. So Every time I go back to it, I, I can recall little parts of my childhood as I read it, which is very, very cool for me. Um, Rob, after me going on a little bit about uh, how great you are and everything else, it's good to have you in the studio. It's Thank good, you. It's good to literally talk about the book. I was going to ask you, obviously, I want to talk a little bit about how the book was put together and how you got to write in it, you know, in the next part of, of the show. In this part, I'd like to talk to you about your favorite memories when you're putting the book together and when you're looking back at your career. What things stand out most for you? What, the most, what, what parts, what you'd like to get across really matter to you? After I completed the book, I thought, actually, th there are no weak chapters in it. You know, when I started putting this together, there were, there was, it evolved anyway. I mean, it, it started off, the idea was just to put all of the sort of cool and interesting anecdotes together. But it soon became apparent that that wasn't really going to work. I needed to do it chronologically and so it, it evolved into more of an autobiography that, that traced my journey because there were cool and interesting stories that happened in the schoolboys and then it was quite interesting you know when, as I moved up through the ranks and so it ended up being put into a year-by-year -year basis uh, and there were parts when I was writing it I thought well what am I going to put in about that you know it, 
as I said previously, I, I, I didn't jump straight to the top when I came out of the schoolboys and went into the adults. It took me a full year to get my expert points. It took me three years to get out of the support championship. I was just sort of stationary there. And so I thought, well, what am I going to write about in, in those years? But it actually turned into one of the, the interesting chapters because I, I was able to, I decided to tell how British motocross worked back then. So it's not a collection of race reports of me saying, well, I didn't do very well in this race and I did slightly better in that one. It was describing how the whole adult motocross scene worked in the UK, how you went from junior to expert to support championship to, to British championship and then on to GPs. And that turned into one of my, my favorite parts because um, it was tough back then. It was very tough. You know, there were a hundred odd riders just trying to qualify, not for the British Championship, for the support championship. <laughs> so, you know, that was an interesting chapter. Uh, as we go through the, through the book, the motocross donation story is always a good one. Um, I particularly also like the chapter on 1988 when I was riding for Alec Wright at Kawasaki and it, I'd raced for Kawasaki in 86 and had a good year. 88, I went back to them and it kind of all went wrong with, um, with Kawasaki there. So that's a memorable one for me as well. And also, I really like my, my last chapter, the, the epilogue, where I discuss sort of what I've learned from my career. You know, I raced for a good number of years. I retired a very long time ago. 1990 was my last season. And I'm not really given that much thought to my career. But in the process of putting this book together, I got to see my career as, as a whole. You know, previously, I just think, well, 86, I did quite well. 87, uh, not so good. 88, terrible. 89, not so good. But if you look at it, say not so good. I was still racing in the World Championship. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, let's not play that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but actually, the, this book has given me the opportunity to, to take a step back and look at the whole thing. And it's very, very interesting what you see, the patterns that emerge that you don't see when you just, uh, living it on the day, or even when you just look back o over the previous season. It's only when you look back over your entire career, you can see those, those trends that go through, those, um, uh, those patterns that emerge. Um, and me getting concussions at the early season in a couple of years, you, you can see that. At the time, you, we have a big crash, you bang your head and you think, oh yeah, that was a big one, but you still carry on racing. Um, and then I wasn't doing so well through the uh, next part of that season. And then towards the end of the year, I was getting better again. And when you take this step back and look at it, you can, you can, you can see that pattern. You think, yeah, that's a concussion at the beginning of the year. <laughs> and it's the, the thing which reading the book, hearing about and, and reading about the concussion, and then you think about the helmet technology back then compared to the helmet technology, what we have now. I believe we're still, we don't talk about concussion enough within the sport. And there's not enough being done about concussion still currently. But even back then, it was, oh, you've uh, just rang your bell, mate. It, just, exactly. Uh, it wasn't talked about at all. Yeah. <laughs> you've rang your bell, mate. Just grow up and uh, get back out there. I, I remember two concussions specifically. One was at Matcham's Park. Um, and I ended up in the first aid hut. And Andy Nichols was in there. And I, Andy Nichols, British rider, raced for Honda Britain. And I said to Andy, oh, what's happened to you, mate? And Andy said, that's the fourth time you've asked me that, Rob. <laughs> which we're, we're laughing. It's funny, but actually yeah. it's not. And there was another one. I can't remember where it was, but the, the concussion uh, test that the first aid gave to me was to ask me who the prime minister was, the, what the date was and where I was at. And I gave the, you know, the first aider those questions. And so that was it. I was fine. And I walked back to the pits and I had no idea 
where I was parked, what vehicle I was in, or, or I was just wandering aimlessly through the pits. Wow. So it looks kind of funny now. You know, we laugh about it now, but it obviously isn't because, and you know, the scary thing is, is that on both of those occasions, I didn't stop for the day. You know, I went out in the next race. I can't remember where my van is. I can't remember that I've just asked Andy Nichols the same question three times before, and I jumped straight back on the bike and off we go. Um, and expected to perform. And expected to perform. And then when you don't perform, not just at that race, but in subsequent races, because we now know that it takes like nine months to get over a concussion, Yeah, that you just blame it on yourself and say, well, I'm just riding bad. Yeah. Not only riding bad, yeah, it's, I need to take a long, hard look at myself. And no, yeah. it's a medical reason. Yeah. But we didn't um, know then. We didn't know, yeah. So your story is all all the more remarkable because of all these things you faced in, in an adversity during the 80s and 90s and in, in coming through that. And I think one thing which I like about the, the book is when I'm reading it, I'm, I'm kind of reading it through kind of your interpretation of, of the, the times and, and, and what you had to, to go through. But also what I like about it is you're quite a realist. So at the same time, you kind of know that you, you were on this exceptional journey. You didn't take anything for granted. And you knew that at one point or another, it was going to stop. But you, you didn't leave any stone unturned. You tried your best. Like you said, you got a concussion. You got back on the bike. And right away up to, to you retired, it's like the one thing I like about it is you didn't seem to have any regrets. You, you've done everything. You, you, you gave everything to get the desired result. So it's not like yeah, you it, looked back and regretted anything. No, I don't regret anything. You know, I, I, I did everything to the best of my ability. I, I tried as hard as I could and I did as good as I did. And that's it. You know, and I was never a champion, never a world champion, never a, a British champion, but I did all right. You know, I had a second in the GP. I rode for Great Britain at the Nations, finished ninth in the world championship. So I still look back at that and think, shit, did I really do that? You know? But when I was coming up, I, as you just started off that question, I was, I'm trying to think of the words that you, you used. You take it for, for granted. No, but we didn't, I don't know, I don't know whether we, any of us appreciated it okay. at the time because we're just doing our job. You know, I was a motocross rider. I was, I'd been getting better gradually. And then I started to get a lot better quickly when I got into GPs. You know, I, I, I suddenly shot up in, in 85. Um, started to do much better in GPs. Don't know why. Didn't know why at the time. Don't really know why now. I mean, I, I've got some some theories. Um, but uh, you know, at the time, you're just trying to do your thing. And for me, I was just trying to work hard and get as best as I could wherever that took me. I didn't know whether I'd be world champion. I don't think I was thinking I was going to be world champion. I don't think that was the, for me, that wasn't the destination where I was heading. I was wanting to do as good as I could and keep getting better and never really knowing where that would end. When I was in the support championship, mucking around in, in 17th place there, I, I, I didn't know whether that was as good as I was ever going to get. Every time I listen to you, it reminds me of different parts of the book. And Sorry. There's, there's, there's a lot in there. <laughs> there is a lot in there. And trust me, once you pick up this book, you're not going to want to put it down because it's, it's so interesting. And especially if you can relate uh, do you know, for the young kids coming through, it's, um, it's a sobering book for you to read and understand what is required. And no word of a lie, okay, you've got the Hurlins, you've got the Crowleys, you've got um, the Geysers, you've got all these people who are, I kind of think that 
the season that we're going into MXGP is like the 80s where you had Gabor's Malherb, Thorpe. You had eight world champions in front of you at one point in a, in a GP. When you finished ninth and the eight riders in front of you all won world championships. Yeah, and at the first race, I think there were nine, because Graham Noyce was riding, eight, eight or nine world champions, former world champions, former or current champions, on the line alongside me. And I got second in that. that and race. you got second in that race. And so we're heading into a, a season s- similar t- to that. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a good concentration of talent at the moment. Uh, and, and as amazing though Hurlings is, it was no different to back then. You know, Thorpe, Malob, Gabors, Jabay, they were all good riders, you know. Phenomenal. Her, Hurlings, um, you know, is no better a rider than Andre Malob or Hawken Carquist or Roger DeCosta or Heike Mickler. Any of them on. Good, and, and good riders, go on. <laughs> good riders, good riders. Yeah. So for, for kids who are kind of listening to this, let me explain one thing to you. Uh, so it was 1985. Yeah, MXDN. Yeah, and imagine I'm, tr- I'm trying to put this in a relatable, relatable form for people to to figure this. So imagine, imagine Dean Wilson on the British team being asked to ride a one two five two stroke. However, Husqvarna have sold out of one two five two strokes, and Dean has to ride a year old. Is that correct? A year old second hand Husqvarna. <laughs> yeah, it's, kind of it's like the that. equivalent. Let me, let, let me sort of set that up from from my side. I, sure. In, in the MXDN is at the end of the year, so I'd started off the 500 GPs that year on a Mako. Was showing potential, hadn't scored any points. Ended up being picked up by Kawasaki for the last couple of GPs. Um, had a, a top 10 finish at the last GP. Finished 39th in the World Championship. So I'm the 39th ranked rider in the 500 class. Great Britain were going to send a team to the MXDN, but for political reasons, um, the ACU, in their wisdom, had scheduled a, a 250 and 125 national championship on the same day as, day as the MXDN. So all the British 125 and 250 riders were tied up. The manufacturers in the ACU were kind of in dispute about this because the manufacturers said, we're not going to release our riders because we want them for the British championship, not the MXDN. Why did you schedule a, a clash of those two races? Who knows? So Britain couldn't get a 125 or a 250 rider. Kurt Nickel, who was a 500 guy, I think he'd finished eighth that season, something like that. He agreed to step down to the 250 class and had a factory 250 KTM provided for him. They thought was obvious number one on the 500. He just won his first one world 500 championship. They didn't have a 125 rider. And this was like about a 10 days before the event. And it looked like Britain wasn't going to send a team at all because we had no 125 rider. All the good national guys were tied up um, with the national championship. And I must have said to somebody somewhere, I don't remember who or where, but I must have said, just as a throwaway comment, I'll ride the 125. I didn't know where I was going to get a 125 <laughs> from. Um, and within a couple of days, I had a call from the uh, team manager, Albert Carter, that said, Rob, I heard that you'd said you'd ride a 125. And I said, well, yeah, of course. I wouldn't miss the chance to ride from a country. And, uh, and he said, okay, you're on the team. Just like that. And it was just like that. <laughs> so here I was, the 39th ranked rider in the 500 class was going to be riding the 125 for Britain. Can, can I stop you there, Rob? Yeah. Um, given that, obviously, the press is in social media nowadays, and I can only imagine a 39th in MXGP being given the 125 slot, what was the, what was the response from, from people in the UK at that point towards you being assigned the 125? Yeah. I mean, just going back just a little bit, that's why perhaps Dean Wilson wasn't the, the best... Um, 
example, example. of a rider, sure, right? Yeah. Because Dean Wilson too good. Yes. You know, back then I I was you know I was probably the fifth or sixth best British rider in the 500 GPs. So it's even even worse. So what was the press reaction like? I think it was it was one of relief that great we've got a 125 rider at least we're going to the to the nations okay i think for thorpe and nickel they probably also thought relief but let's be honest rob we haven't got a chance rob's not going to do any good um and i think yeah it was probably a bit of well it's a token gesture it's a token effort this year you know rob doesn't even ride a 125 and he's not that good anyway uh so but hey ho we'll, we'll at least we've got a team there yeah so that's what I think the, the press reaction was like. Okay. There, was a, there wasn't any expectations or pressure because of um, uh, it's, it's Rob. It's not going to be the best team that we can have, but, you know, we'll give it a good shot. But also the pressure on your shoulders must have been immense because you kind of put your hand up and said, yeah, I'll ride the 125. And then you quickly figured out you didn't have a 125. Yeah, I knew I didn't have a 125. <laughs> you know, I got the gig before I'd got the, um, the tools. So I thought, but I've just been, you know, a few weeks before, I'd been picked up as a Kawasaki-sponsored rider. They'd helped me out with um, bike for the last few GPs. So I thought, it'll be no problem. I'll speak to Alec Wright, and I'm sure he'll lend me a 125. That was what was in the back of my mind. Sure. So uh, as soon as I'd got this call up, I rang Alec at Kawasaki and said, great news, riding for Britain on the 125. Can I get a 125? And he said, no, you can't get a 125 for two reasons. One. As you know, we're in dispute with the ACU about the fact that they scheduled a 125 and 250 national championship on the same day as the nations. So all the importer teams are sticking together on that and digging their heels in and arguing with the ACU. So I can't be seen to be helping you because that will be breaking the solidarity with my fellow importers. Yeah. So that was that problem. So I then said, okay, well, what was the second reason so one was the ACU and the second reason he said even if I could help you I've got no 125s anyway because it's September and all the new bikes were sold out months ago and the new 1986 models aren't in so I I don't have any bikes but in any case I can't help you because we got this political standoff with the ACU wow so I went from elation at being selected to ride from my country against all the odds to realizing I hadn't got a bike so I thought well what am I going to do am I going to turn it down and, you know, it's a great honour. To, to me, it was a great honour to be selected it's, it's, to ride for Great Britain. It is literally, it's got to be the, the, the biggest thing a rider can ever do, quite yeah, simply. I think so, which yeah. is why I hear of people turning the opportunity down now. It just it grates on me. You know, it's one of my, probably the mo- proudest moment. I can say I race for my country. Yeah. It's yeah. not about money. It's not about prestige or anything else. It's about being chosen yeah. as one of three riders. <laughs> to to represent your country. It's yeah. that simple. And, and it was even more surprising for me because, you know, I wasn't a top runner at that point. So for me to be, you know, okay, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't number one choice of the 125. I wasn't number two, number three, number four. You know, I was way down. I was a 500 guy. So I was plucked from obscurity and, and thrust into that position. I, I didn't want to let the opportunity go. So Kawasaki couldn't supply me with a bike. So I thought, well, I'll go out and buy one then. I'm not going to miss this opportunity. So um, my mechanic, Ken Bolf and I, we started ringing around all the dealers in Britain. And just as Alec Wright had said, they were all sold out. Nobody had a new one. Wow. Because, you know, they, they don't sell 
Nobody sells new bikes all year round. They sell them at you know the end of the year, don't they? In, the, in January, yeah. February, and then everybody's got the bike for the season. So, so how long are you out for the nations at this point? Ten days. So, ten days. You have no bike. You've just found out that there's no there's no new bikes. Yep. So now your only option now is it was the Monday or the Tuesday that I got the call from Albert Carter, and this was so we had one weekend in between. The next weekend was Newbury British Championship. The following weekend was Galedorf. So you had to race anyway as well on the Sunday? Yes. So you had to find a bike and race and then get ready to go to the yes. nations. So it was like, this was all happening on the on the, the Tuesday, Wednesday. And wow. so we just turned to the trials of motocross news and looked down the classifieds in the back yep. to see if we can find a second-hand one. Um, and we found a second-hand Kawasaki 125 that was being sold by a, a father of a retiring schoolboy. And this was not too far away from us in Gloucestershire somewhere. That was the only one that we could find. I think there might have been one in Scotland. Wow. So that was it. It was secondhand. It had done a season, um, completely stocked bike. And I sent Ken down to buy it because I thought if he knows that it's, you know, this guy might recognize my name. So maybe he might charge more for it if he knows it's for a desperate man. So yeah. I sent Ken down. So Ken went to have a look at this bike. <laughs> it was in pretty good shape, but it was completely stocked bike as this kid had been racing all year in the seniors and the schoolboys. Yeah with the Seven Valley or Cotswold Club, I assume. The guy said it was for his retiring son, and Ken lied to him and said it was for his son that was just starting up, and so a deal was done. And he had no idea that his kid's bike was going to be raced in the motocross donations the next week. And he threw in a bike stand and a clutch lever, as I remember. Wow. See, that's inspired. Good deal. Good deal. <laughs> and so Ken came back with his bike, and, and, and that was it. So he had, we had no parts for it. We had no tuning parts for it. Ken had to quickly go through that, bike i don't think he even took the head off it because we had no gaskets wow all we got was a few 500 parts i don't think we even had 125 size tires i think we probably had 518 tires as they used to be called or yeah. 2018 and that was it so i can't remember the exact day but I, I raced at newbury that weekend which is the british championship round and that was when i was announced to the press as the third rider of the team so i got a nice shot with kurt and david yep so this was now seven days before the, you know, one weekend before the nation. So I think on the, on the Monday or the Tuesday, I went down to Camberley um, with Thorpey to, to ride the bike, not to run it in as such, because it was already running. But this is the first time you'd rode 125? First time I'd rode any 125 for three or four years. We went down to Camberley because it, the weather was bad. Camberley was a sand track. It was just down the road from from Thorpey, and, uh, and that was the only opportunity I got to ride the bike. So I, I rode it for maybe 15, 20 minutes. I didn't want to wear it out. Yep. Tried to get the hang of a 125 around the sand track, which wasn't good. At what point were you kind of thinking, is this a bad idea? <laughs> Never. Never. Never was I thinking so, it was a bad idea. I knew it was a stock bike. I knew it was a second-hand bike, but I wanted to go to the motocross donations. I amazing. wanted to represent my country. It's amazing because most people it, would just be like, I am so up against it at the moment with what I've got, like... Just, just man up and get on with it. Yeah. You know, the, the people, riders these days say, I, I can't ride because I haven't got A-kit suspension or I need these these 150-pound Oakley goggles or whatever they are. Yeah. Get over yourself. Just just get on and do it. So I, like so that, I, yeah. I had a standard bike, uh, but I was going and I was going to do the best that I could. That was, that was my agenda there. So I rode it that once down at Camberley. I did get to ride Thorpey's RC500 that day as well, but that's maybe a story for another day. Oh, we're going to save that for another day. Um, so that was it. So Ken then uh, took the bike back. He was, he was based at Bath. 
just down the road just from here, road. actually. Wow. Yeah. So he went and prepped my that one two five very quickly, and then he loaded it up and he drove off down to Germany, and wow. that's how that came about. And uh, I went to that race. Do you want me to tell say a story about the race? I do because I love I love this story. This is one of the my highlights in the book. So that year was the first year that they combined the motocross donation. So one two fives, two fifties, and five hundreds were all going to compete on the track at the same time. Uh, previous to that, always, there would always been a separate event for 500s and a separate event for 250s. So it was all combined. So, But all the bikes were together, unlike it is today. So we had uh, 63 riders on the line. Wow. So same format, but literally all the riders and all the classes, three classes three, of 125, 250, 500. Three races with all three size bikes together on the start line at the same time, 63 riders on the, on the gate. So double lineups? Yeah, it had to be because yeah. the gate was, was 40. 40. Yeah. So it was done by a ballot again. So the first, you know, team that drew number one had number 123, 46, or whatever the maths is. Yeah. On Saturday in practice, uh, it was really cool because we were riding as a team. And so I would follow Thorpey and he'd give me lines and then he'd follow me for a bit and he'd look at any lines that I'd got to see if they're any better. So that was all going good. And then Kurt Nickel crashed, unbeknownst to us. I hadn't realized and he broke his leg. Yeah. So Kurt was out of it. We were down to two people, two riders. Now that year, the way they did the scoring was you dropped your two worst scores. So actually, we were still in with a chance because... You had to just perform, though. Kurt's two scores were dropped on Saturday. You know, he, he was out of it. So yeah. both of my results would count. Would so previously, I was there as a backup, really, because with Kurt and David... Uh, we had a good chance of winning that because they were both going to be up the sharp end. Yeah. And I was there just as a backup in case um, one of them had a, a, a problem. Yeah. But all of a sudden, then the pressure was on me because both of my results had to, had to count. And, and can you kind of recall that point? What were you thinking? At that point where you, you're kind of in the hospital, you'd obviously gone to see Kurt and then it kind of dawned on you, a oh, crap is down to me. Yeah, I suppose it did. I don't know. I was just focused on trying to do the best that I could. That's all I could do. Yeah. There was no point in me saying, well, I'm going to go and win this. All I can do is race and do the best that I can do. And that's what I was, that's what I was focused on doing the following day. Just the, the fact of, I mean, people will be able to relate to this today, you know, with the size of MXON or MXDN that it is. And the fact that you're there on a second-hand bike on a 125, it, no, no pipe. No, no, no nothing. No nothing. No nothing. It was a standard bike that you picked up from a senior rider yeah. in a club, club level event, and you've taken this bike to the nations and going to perform against who, who were some of the riders? David Bailey? In the 125 class, um, it was scored by class. Yeah. So it wasn't scored by race position. So, you know, the first 125, if the first 125 was sixth, he got one point for being first in the 125. So right. in the 125 class, it was Ron Lachine on his RC125. Decent De- rider. Davy Strybos, I think, Pekka Vekkanen, uh, So It was the top three wow. in the 125 World Championship. Yeah. And, you know, lots of other good 125 riders. Yeah. And I remember going to the start line. There's a video of this on YouTube. If you look the YouTube video, for the first race, I go to the start line and I'm right alongside David Bailey. I'm number nine on the 125. Yeah. And David Bailey's there. Uh, and if ever I had a hero in motocross, it's David Bailey. Yeah, awesome. And he's there on his RC500, priceless thing. Yeah. And his, his exhaust pipe on that bike is made of Inconel. Uh, and that exhaust pipe alone was worth more than my bike. Wow. So it's quite, quite a bizarre thing. 
Yeah, I think for anybody who's listening to this, if you if you're driving home, like really try and let this sink in because this is kind of this sounds like a Hollywood film. <laughs> the the fact that you've literally gone to the race representing the country. Obviously, Kurtz had this terrible injury to his leg. I think it's broken femur. You said in the book. Yeah, and now. You're on a year old bike and you have to represent the country in one, two, fives, which you've not ridden for. It's not like you've done three months on the one, two, five and, and practiced and, and got used to the bike. No, I'd had 15 minutes on it on the, on the Tuesday before. I'm trying to think back. Um, I don't think, I, I don't know, maybe I felt a little bit embarrassed that I was on this shitty old one, two, five and everybody else was on good bikes and, you know that I would have probably expected to have been able to get hold of a good bike for that event. You know, you've yeah. to ride for your country and nobody's helping me with this. But I think that this whole story is a testament to the person you are and the reason why you were able to climb the level of, of, of world motocross that you did. Because the fact that you've, you've, you've gone into this with literally everything stacked against you. And I think this is one of my favorite parts of the book when you actually read this part and you're going through this and you're kind of understanding and when you put it in today's terms it's just like this is an absolute matter most people would just be i mean hard not to be negative really it must be really hard to think oh god i'm you know the pressure on me about representing my country i'm i want to give it my all but i'm just hoping this bike's gonna last because i'm on a second-hand bike it's not like i'm next to david bailey on his factory um built bike specifically for this event I'm on my, my bike from the Trolls of Motocross News. <laughs> I don't think you can go into it thinking I'm at a disadvantage. I, I never did. You know, it was a long time ago now, but I'm trying to think what yeah. emotions were going through my, my head. I was I, just I, determined to do well. Um, you know, and in the races, I was getting pulled by other 125s, not, of course, and the 250s and the 500s. You know, you can't get yeah. a good start against 250s and 500s in the 63 rider field. But I just got better and better, and it, it kind of almost m- motivated me more. You know, I'm on this this stock bike with a worn out top end, but I'm sure as hell not going to let it be a factor. You know, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to ride through that, and and I rode my ass off in that that race. I got better and better on the one two five as the race went on, and I consider that one of my best rides. So it's not like I did this and then rode around at the back and made the numbers up. No, I, I rode my ass off and and came sixth in class, and the team came fifth. But tell me about the third race because it was the third race where. Literally, if I'm right in thinking, was it um, fifth place? Was was literally last couple we, of laps? We, he was, was... we were sitting in in sixth. I mean, as a rider, you you don't know this until afterwards. You know, my mechanics giving me pit signals. I know what position I'm in and, yeah. and what position in the in the class. You know, if you overtook a two fifty, it didn't really matter. You had to overtake another one two five to gain a position. But I, I don't think I thought too much about the overall position. I just. I just did rode as fast as I could. I can see that there were other 250s. You know, it was a crowded race. There's 63 riders there. Yeah. So there was always somebody to chase. And Someone I was going, to hang on the back of I was going and... past 250s, and I could see a 125 up in, in front. Um, and I forget who it was now, but uh, I just kept chasing and chasing, not thinking, well, I need to pass him in order to, to get Britain into fifth place rather than sixth, just because you can hear it's another 125. And I got him in the last corner. Yeah, I think it was Carl Sulzer, was it? That's it, Sultzer, Austrian, yeah. Carl Sulzer. Yeah. I got him literally in the last corner. And unbeknownst to me, that was the difference that, that meant that Britain finished, finished fifth, fifth rather yeah. than sixth. Which is phenomenal. So when I read this book, this was the, for me, obviously there's many, many chapters. And, you know, there's 27 that you've mentioned. But for me, this was such an iconic moment. 
Uh, and I think you're very humble in in your assessment of it, but it really was a, a, a meteoric performance and something which I, I know that when other people will read this, they're, they're just going to have the the utmost admiration for you for for achieving that in the race. There's so many more, <laughs> so many more races, so many parts I want to talk to you, but we're going to have another little break. Listen to our sponsors and we'll be back in five to speak to Rob Moore. Even Strokes is the newest e-commerce store in motocross. Built by motocross enthusiasts, Evenstrokes understands your need and offers all of the products you need for a weekend at the track. Shop now for Yoko, Alpine Stars, Fast House, and more at Evenstrokes.com. Talon wheels have been iconic in the industry for over 30 years. Designed, built, and manufactured in the UK, Talon wheels, sprockets, footrests, and clutch baskets are used by professional riders like Jason Anderson, Zach Osborne, and Sean Simpson. Head over to www.talon-eng.co.uk for more info. You are listening to the British Motocross Show. We are back, the British Motocross Show. This week we have Rob Andrews, who has brought out a book, The Inside Line, Racing the 500cc World Motocross Championship. Obviously, We've talked about certain parts. There's other parts I'd love to discuss, and I think we're going to have to leave that for for another day, which is more on the concussion, the the whole Alec Wright Kawasaki kind of what went on and, and how you felt it. I'm really interested in that part. I'm sure some of the people listening to this uh, would love to expand on that. So we're definitely going to have to bring you in for another podcast to to go into more depth. And and I'd like to know your opinions as well about the you know currently what's going on and the, the mentality of, of riders coming through and how things have changed in in your thoughts and your opinions rob so i'd love to invite you back into the to the show um in the future if, if, if you'd okay. be up for it sure but one thing i'm actually fascinated about and i kind of read about in the book was you had the opportunity and you thought about writing this book when you finished your racing career which was not abrupt but obviously injuries took their toll and you finished a little bit earlier than, than most riders I did. I stopped racing at 28, which is quite young, I suppose. It was young back then. And, you know, even in today's racing, that's, that's quite young. Yeah. Um, but I stopped because I, I, I realized that I'd gone as far as I could get. That, that was a very brief explanation of that. I, I, I wasn't going to get any better. I'd, I'd done as well as I could. But um, it did cross my mind uh, to write a book, but I, I just I didn't know what about. You know, when I stopped racing, I went into doing test riding for dirt bike rider and so i was doing a little i was riding the tests myself yeah so i enjoyed writing so it did cross my mind well maybe i could do a book and i know that kurt had uh, he put one out about that time as well okay um and i thought oh, that might be a cool thing to do but i just couldn't really see the angle okay. and what what was it going to be about i don't know so you know kurt's book was a, a mixture of his memories of his career and mm-hmm. a, you know, a little bit about similar to how my book is. And then he went on to talk about uh, other things, getting sponsorship, riding, and so on. Yeah. So Kurt had already got that covered, so I, I couldn't see a, a, an angle. And so that idea of a book just went out of my head for the next 25 years and only came in fairly recently. Now, there's, I, I keep talking about different parts of the book I love. However, I believe both of us share the same mindset. And I think any person who's out there, you're up and coming or... You're, you're looking about how do I progress? There's one part of this book which really, really hits home. And I think it was in the last couple of years of you racing, you really understood the benefits of being sponsored, but not only being sponsored, but understanding that it's a two-way relationship. 
like you're asking for something from from a business or uh, whether it's products or support and everything else, but you ha- you knew that you had to represent them and give something back because that was the only way that the relationship would be beneficial for both parties. Now, I'm a, a strong believer that there's quite a few people out there which still believe that a, a sticker on a bike and um, you know putting their logo on their van is is their way of repaying the support and the faith. But you quite rightly talk about in the book right at the end is, is about the looking after your sponsors, looking after the people who are supporting you. And you seem to be very, very good at it by going out your way to contact local radio stations, local papers, and, and, and so on. Do you mind um, sort of just expanding on that? A yeah. Um, people, I think back then, or even today, just seem to think, well, I'm, I'm winning local expert races, so I'm fast, so you know, will you sponsor me? And why would they sponsor you? You know, well, what, what's the point of sponsorship? Someone's only going to sponsor you if, if they're going to get something in return. They're going to get publicity in return. And I can remember when I, I first got in the adults, I had no sponsors. Um, but I thought, well, what have I got to lose by asking? So I, I contacted Trelleborg Tires, if anybody remembers Trelleborg Tires. Um, I just sent them a nice letter and, and, and said what I would be be planning to do the next season and, uh, and could I inquire about sponsorship? And I was told to go and meet their, their importer um, and I put a suit on and took a briefcase and took a little presentation and went up there. And I would, would have been, I don't know, 19 at the time, but I always would wear a, a suit when I went to see somebody. And so I got uh, a deal for tyres out of there and I did the same thing with Century Oils, an oil company. And I think there wasn't... No other riders were doing that. No other riders were really putting the effort in to be presentable and, and to represent their sponsors. They were more from the mindset of, well, I'm at a certain level, so I'm doing them a favor. If they're giving me free oil, well, so they should do because I'm, I'm a good rider. Mm-hmm. That's the wrong way to look at it. Okay. So I was always seen as being professional. Um, I did contact local newspapers. I would write my own press releases, just try and get as much coverage um, as I could because I thought if I was better known if i was a, a, a more recognized rider then then i would get more press coverage and that would mean that i'd be able to get better deals so i probably got better sponsorship than than perhaps i should have done from from my results alone but i've always been like that i don't know where i get that from you know maybe I'm a, maybe that comes from my dad i know he was a good businessman okay it's just one thing which i found interesting which i wanted to share um with everyone and in this podcast show really is about this book because the more people I believe that read this book, the more people that have a better understanding of, of what it takes to, to get to a certain level, especially within this sport. It's really, really hard. And there's only the amount of talent out there, the money and everything else. Still, that doesn't beat hard work, perseverance and having that focus and strength in your mind. And I think that's what comes across within this book in, in the way that you conduct yourself and the way that you you have gone through your career. I think there's, there's so much valuable information in this book to offer people i think that was the concept of the book to i i lived that that journey i went from a beginner and ended up racing at the the very top level um and so that was the concept of the the book to to explain what happened on that journey and how it all came to be uh you know i went through that journey myself um, i made the decisions i did at the time which you know largely were were right um and it's valuable information for anybody that's also looking to go on that journey themselves because I've been, been through it. Uh, nothing's exaggerated in there. Nothing's uh, 
made to seem better or worse than it actually was. But I've just explained how that journey was. So you thought about the book originally when you sort of came away from motocross. And I know you went on to become a test rider for, for Dirt Bike Rider. At what point was, was it family? What said to you? Or, or, or were you reading other people's books? What, what gave you the inspiration to, to put this book together and release it now? The idea for a book, like when I stopped racing, it, 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 that was just a, a couple of seconds thought in my head. Maybe I should do a book. Now I can't see what the angle is. So that was it. So we'll make too much of that. Um, how did this book come along? Social media came along, you know, going back 10 years. We you know, started to have forums and that sort of thing. And uh, I would participate on in those. And, and sometimes I'd see a picture crop up, you know, perhaps of, of me or some other rider from back in the day. And it might inspire a, a memory of mine. And so I would write something on that forum or uh, whatever and people seem to like it sometimes perhaps people may post something up and, and write a little anecdote themselves and it isn't correct and so i would jump in and say well actually this is what happened so i started doing that and then people seem to like it so i ended up starting up a website robandrewsmx.com which was a collection of photos and sort of the, the stories that went behind them yeah um just because it was fun and people seemed to like it yeah then facebook came along and the same thing happened with facebook um uh, but the actual trigger point for this is that a friend of mine, Steve Carty, asked me, it would be uh, summer 2018. He asked me on Facebook uh, on a number of occasions to write a little Facebook post about how we used to prepare for overseas GPs like Canada and Carlsbad in my case in 86. Yeah. And I assume that what Steve was wanting me to write was, well, you know, how did we ship the bikes over there? How did we decide what tools to take, what parts? That's what I assume he was on about. And I thought, I haven't really got time for this. But eventually one night I did start to put something down on my iPad one evening. Um, and so I went into it thinking, yeah, I need to explain how we prepared for Canada. And I remembered that with Canada, a few weeks before that, I was at that point lying, I'd finished, this was 86, so I'd finished second at the first GP, so I'd spent a week at second in the World Championship. At the time that I was going to have this conversation with Alec Wright a few weeks before, I was about eighth in the World Championship. I was ahead of Kurt Nickel. I was riding for the factory Kawasaki team on a factory Kawasaki. And Alec Wright sat me down and said, we need to talk about um, Canada and Carlsbad, Ace. I said, okay. Um, and... Uh, he said, if you want to go there, you're going to have to pay for it all yourself. We haven't got the budget. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> exactly. And so, um, so I, I remembered this, that, you know, that, well, that was just a few weeks. So actually that trip that Steve Carty wants me to write about, that was the trip I had to fund myself, even though I was lying in eighth place in the world championship. Hey ho. Um, yeah. and I then remembered that, and this is probably the more significant story is that we had the GP in Germany. And Canada was two weeks after that. So I got back from Germany. We got one free weekend in between Germany and then going to Canada. Yeah. And I got back home. And on the Tuesday, I was wandering through a supermarket in Tewkesbury in Gloucestershire. Uh, I went to, to leave this supermarket and walked out of the open door and found that it wasn't an open door. It was a pane of glass that was unmarked. And this was on the Tuesday. And I walked through this plate glass window. Wow. And this window broke obviously and i stumbled through it tremendous crash and i turned around um and walked back into the shop 
through this hole in the window and there's a massive piece of jagged glass hanging down from the top. It's a silly thing to do, but at the time, I just walked through this window. So I went back into the shop. By this point, staff were coming running and I, I apologised for breaking their window and then realised that I'd cut my arm like properly bad down to the bone and I'd cut the radial artery. Now, most people won't know what a radial artery is, but if you cut a radial artery, that's really, really bad news. And the blood was spurting onto the ceiling everywhere. The, the pressure from the, the blood from that artery is just insane. Wow. Do you mind me talking about this? In no, no, I'm, 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 no, you carry on. I'm, I'm so, fixated. So uh, I'd cut my arm really bad. And the, the poor staff at, at Tesco's, they lay me down on the floor and with a little first aid kit, they put a bandage on, but it, it wouldn't stop the bleeding. Um, you know, this is a main artery. And so I just lay in the, on the floor in an ever-increasing pool of blood, waiting for the ambulance to come. And I kept saying to them, where's this ambulance? And they said, it's, it's on its way, it's on its way. And it never came. And so I was there, I don't know, 25, 30 minutes until eventually a doctor turned up, not an ambulance. And he explained to me that he'd, I'd cut my radial artery and that uh, that was bad news and that he needed to clamp off the ends of the artery to stop the bleeding. I'm talking, this is a, a properly big pool of blood I'm lying in. Yeah. And these girls have been pressing hard on my arm with all their might, but they couldn't stop it. And so he said, I'm going to have to get these forceps and I'm going to have to grab the end of the artery and clamp it off. In Tesco's. In Tesco's. <laughs> you still okay with me? Yeah, with yeah, carry, carry on. I'm just trying honest, to get this picture this is, in my head. So I'm lying on the floor yeah. in Tesco's with two or three Tesco's employees around me holding a piece of bandage on my arm, trying to stop my blood from squirting on the ceiling. Yeah. Um, so this doctor eventually arrives and he said, I need to clamp off the artery. So uh, he said, it's probably going to hurt. So he took the bandage off and straight away, blood spurted on him and on the ceiling again. And he got these forceps and he dug around into the wound in my <sighs> arm, trying to get the end of the artery. But the artery had... had retracted back up into my arm so he couldn't reach it. So he had to get a scalpel and he had to cut a further incision in my arm, which, which I still bear the scar. No anaesthetic. He had to cut my arm open further wow. in order to peel the skin back to then dig around into my arm again with the forceps and then eventually clamp these forceps off. And then he put a second pair on the other end, the lower end of the thing, and then I was out of danger. So I'm now laying Tesco's with two pairs of scissors hanging out my arm. A huge um, cut. A massive cut. Cut my face as well and my hand and everything, but the arm was the, the bad one. And this was all happening eight days before I was due to go to Canada. So eventually an ambulance and came. And eighth in the world. Uh, eighth or ninth at that point, yeah. <laughs> okay. So eventually an ambulance takes me off to hospital and I get to hospital. Um, I was out of it by then. They'd given me some drugs, but my, my dad was there. And apparently they said, um, you know, it's a really bad injury. We can stitch him up, but he's probably going to lose all the feeding in his hand and so on. Um, my dad said, well, I'm, I'm not happy with that. I want a second opinion. And we found another surgeon and he thought he could get a better outcome. And so I went uh, with this guy, Donald Ainscoe, his name was. Okay. And, uh, and so I had surgery at some point. I don't remember whether it was that night or the night before. And then was in hospital for a couple of days and, you know, sort of awoke with my arm in plaster. Um, so this is now a week before I'm due to leave. So 
I go home, a couple of days later, I go back to the doctor for a, a follow-up and I explain the situation, although he already knew my predicament from speaking to my dad. So I said, I'm due to leave for Canada in a week. Um, by this point, I'd gone back to him the next week, so you know, it's in a couple of days. Yeah. And, and this Saturday, I'm supposed to be racing in Canada and I'm currently in the top 10 in the World Championship. Um, can I go? And he said, well, I can't recommend it. But I, I, fully, I fully understand why you want to. Yeah. Um, but he said, I can't recommend it because, you know, you've just had surgery to put your arm back together and the, the wound could open up again. Even the artery could open up again. And that wouldn't be good. No. Um, but he said, I can't stop you. So we flew out to Canada anyway. And then on the Friday evening, um, I got my arm in plaster. On the Friday evening, I cut the plaster off. I thought, well, I'll give it a go on Saturday, see how it is. And as soon as the plaster came off, my arm was all weak. It had only been in a plaster for a week, but it's surprising how weak your arm gets when you're not using it for a few days. Yeah. So as soon as the plaster was off, it felt very weak and, and exposed. Yeah. And I got a massive scar in, on, my, on my forearm. Yeah. Um, and so I modified the cast and cut the bit off the where your thumb goes around and tried to put it back on again and thought, well, I'll try that. And so. Tried it on Saturday. It was it was painful, but I could I could ride. And then raced on Sunday and and still got a tenth. Wow! So uh, so I remembered that story from the logistics. This, this, what you put this, together. This started with a question of how did the book come about. <laughs> but I remembered that story. That I've just gone into great detail explaining. Um, while I was sitting there one evening with my iPad, thinking, what can I write about how we prepared for Canada? And I just thought, oh, this is nobody knows no. this. You know, there was something in the press at the time. Yeah, Rob had an accident, he cut his arm. But nobody knows the extent to this. I basically nearly bled to death on the floor of Tesco's in Tewkesbury and still went to to Canada. And I'm not saying that because I want to be seen as a hero or something like that. That's just what happened. Yeah. That's what And that's I how did. you dealt with it. That's, what, that's exactly what happened. And I did. And, you know, maybe it was a stupid thing to do, um, but that's what I did. And so I sat there thinking, I can't put this on a Facebook post. That's going to be, you know, viewed by you know a few dozen people and go off the bottom of the screen. It, it's too good. So yeah. that was the trigger point. I just thought I've got to put this in a book, right? And because so there's all these little things which have happened over the years, which that there needs an explanation, and it needs to be a platform. Not, there's a you know my whole motocross career was was full of stuff. I say like that, and I wasn't walking through windows all the time. But you know, <laughs> interesting know. stuff that just hap happened to me, and 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 I look back and think, well, actually, it was quite interesting. Yeah. And so that's what's the book about. That's what the book is about. It's not a series of race reports or anything. It's just what happened to me. And at the end, I'd, I'd say I think the line is you know, all these things that happened to me was was that normal or was I just incredibly unlucky? You know, the the weird things that happened through my career, but. That's what happened to me. It didn't happen to Thorpe or Kurt or whatever. They've all got a different story to tell, but maybe equally as interesting. Yeah. So that's, that's how the book started. It was that realizing that, yeah, those two things happened before Canada and I really need to put this down. So I put the feels out on Facebook that night, I think, and said, a few people have said to me before, oh, you should write a book, Rob, because they've liked my Facebook posts. And so that night I said, okay, is, do you think there's really a market for this? And I had hundreds of replies saying, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. I, I was one of them. When you, when you announced that it was a book, you were going to do a book, I was oh, fantastic. However, I thought you'd probably 
Uh, one of the things which I can't quite fathom out is how quickly you've gone from that point to writing the book to the fantastic images, which obviously haven't taken five minutes to uh, find. The quality of the book, the cover. How have you managed to do that from from that point? I mean, you must have literally spent the last 18 months. 18 months, pretty much full time. You know, I'm retired, so fortunately uh, I haven't got a proper job. So to speak. Um, well, you're, so, you're a, uh, a writer now. A published uh, author. <laughs> published sounds author, very yeah. good, doesn't it? I had an old school friend <laughs> yeah. message me on Facebook saying, I see you're a published author. Yes. And I said, oh, just for all of two days. Yeah. <laughs> um, 18 months. Uh, yeah. It's been an enormous amount of work. Unbelievable. Huge learning curve? Huge learning curve. Because I've never done anything like that before. You know, I'm just, just a dumb motocross rider. But... I didn't know anything about how to write a book, about how the book was constructed, about printing, about artwork, about anything like that. Um, but once I decided I was going to do it, then I applied myself with the same thoroughness and dedication that I did my motocross career. I thought, well, I'll figure it out. So I spoke to lots of people who had previously done books, other mm -hmm. books, picked their brains, asked them how they did it. I started writing it, the first draft of 95,000 words. And 95,000 words won't mean a lot to you listeners. Um, 95,000 words is a lot. Um, you know, your average bike test in a magazine is maybe 1,500, 1,800, yeah. something like that. Uh, your average Harry Potter novel is, I don't know, 70,000 words. Wow. So it's, you know, it's 40% bigger than a Harry Potter novel. Yeah. So it took me three months to do the first draft. I then left it alone. Um, to come back to it with a, a fresh eye to then edit it and start to make sure that it read right and try and say the same thing in less words, that sort of thing. Okay. So I edited it, oh, three or four subsequent times. Um, by then I'd, I'd managed to get hold of the photos from Ray Archer. It yep. took me weeks going through the photos. Right. And this isn't just, uh, we're not talking about photos on a screen, are we? No. Which you flick through. We're talking about a box full of slides and, and black and white negatives. Color slides weren't so bad because it looks like it looks. Yeah. With a negative, of course, it's a negative. So you've got to act, difficult to tell who the rider is. So Ray Archer was just brilliant. He sent me a huge box of thousands of images. And I spent weeks going through these slides and negatives and finding just some amazing photos. Did, did they help prompt some other stories? So as you started looking at these images, you were thinking, ah, I remember that. And then you were able, did that contribute to the book in a way that maybe you missed some, some types of, were there any times or, or poignant moments where you looked at an image and you were, you were inspired to, ah, I remember this now and added to the book? Or was it just that the images sat quite nicely with what you had written? Uh, I think that the, the latter, they sat nicely with what I'd written. I, I don't think the images caused me to go back and rewrite anything because I was already quite happy with the, with the copy. Okay. So, the, you know, the words of the book, I was already quite happy that that, that was good. So the images were complementing what I'd already written. So it was great to, to firstly see just some, some jaw-dropping, epic images. You know, some of the shots I got from Namur Never yeah. been seen before. They're just superb. Yeah. And they, they'd never been published. And they were sat in Ray's storage unit. Yeah. So great finding those. I also found some great behind the scenes stuff that just would fit great with what I wrote. Uh, and another little pit stuff. You mentioned earlier about my dad on his laptop, <laughs> with his laptop. Yeah. You know, I'd written about that. Yes. You know, the writing was already done and, you know, in the can. And then 
lo and behold, Ray's got a photo of my dad. So amazing. It was it, it fitted right with that. All of those, there are 400 photos in there. Every one of those photos has had 20 minutes in Photoshop. Do the maths. Wow. Tracks were dusty. It wasn't uh, digital cameras. Um, and so all of those slides have got little specks of dust on them, you know, which comes out. So I needed to clean those up. The, the colors needed to be balanced. So um, I'd never used Photoshop before. I got a copy um, and figured it out. And the same with the artwork. I'd never seen InDesign before. I had no idea. Figured it out. So done the whole thing. That's phenomenal. Like I come from an agency background, digital background. Kudos uh, <laughs> to you. It's it, that's pretty impressive. I had a little bit of help with the design. Yeah. So a little shout out to Tom York, who sort of came up with the with the style of uh, of the cover and the, the layout of the book. But in terms of actually physically creating the artwork, I did all of that myself and thoroughly enjoyed it. That was probably my favourite point of putting this book together but it was great that i was able to do it because if i'd have gone to another designer to get them to lay out firstly it would have just taken forever and, and been prohibitively expensive yeah but it meant that i was laying out the text and the columns and the photos and everything else i could put a photo in exactly where it related to the text yeah so what you'll find is you'll be reading something um and then when that paragraph finishes the photo is right there it's not like you've got to flick to the next page to see a photo that relates to something that was written two pages before so as well as ray i mean i've, I've seen that sort of your, your dad seemed to have contributed to a few of these images as well my dad was a good photographer um he was a uh, yeah good amateur photographer he was actually uh he ended up being both a licentiate and an associate of the royal photographic society really yeah so he was a good photographer um, he'd never done any motorsport before, but he uh, he died a couple of years ago, sadly. But uh, he, he left me with uh, a bag of, uh, of old slides and stuff, which I was going through and found some fantastic uh, pictures in there. Color slides from back in 1977, 78 of the schoolboy days that are just crystal clear. Wow. But, but most fantastically for me is that my dad has got a photo of my first ever race start. And when I found that, I just thought, I'm so lucky to have this. That's amazing. And I looked at it and thought, that's the first three yards of my entire motocross career. Yeah. And there was me as a 14-year-old at that point going across my first start line. But he also has a photo of the very first time I ever rode a motocross bike, my first TM125 Suzuki. And this is the one which didn't even have knobbly wheels? No. That, oh. Sorry, my first motocross bike, which is a, a proper motocross bike, oh, okay. Suzuki TM125. Right. But, but he's got a, a photo of that, which I've used as a double-page spread. Um, it's black and white, this one. But it's the very first time I ever rode a bike. And I know that because I haven't even got proper boots. I've got wellies on and overalls. <laughs> and it wasn't long after I got that motocross bike that I got the proper gear. And wow. so it's, yeah, and I'm jumping it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Straight away. I, I've got a friend, uh, Adrian, I'm going to call him out on this. I always um, take the mickey out of him saying, look, that was my first day and I'm jumping the bike higher than you do now. And you've been racing for a few years now. <laughs> I mean, first, first and foremost, it's, it's a great book, a really, really good book. And anybody who picks up this book is, is going to love reading it. I don't care what era you're from or whatever. There's so much that you're going to enjoy about this book, but also you're going to learn. And, and I think that's the, the great thing about it is, is a book which, you know, explains about your journey, but also about the things 
that you've learned along the way, which are still very applicable to, to people today. The retail is £40? It's £40, yeah. And where can people buy it from? They can buy it from uh, theinsidelinebook.com or if uh, you can't remember that one, then robandrewsmx.com goes to the same place. So either of those two addresses will take you there. You can order it online. It's available for worldwide shipping. And uh, yeah, it's a great book. You'll really enjoy it. And one thing I love about you, Rob, as well, is anybody can talk to you. You're on social media. You probably get quite a few messages a day, but you try your best to answer them and, and, and talk to people as well. Um, yeah, I do. Um, yeah, I do get uh, quite a few messages, but I, I don't mind talking to anybody. Uh, I'm just a regular guy that goes on Facebook. If someone's got a <laughs> question, then I'll, I'll answer them. So, yeah, that's not a problem. Great. So it's absolutely fantastic. It's been an honor having you on the show. The book, like I said, talking with you on and off the air has been fascinating. And I'd love to sort of get you back on the show in the future. I'd love to do that. Um, I've enjoyed it as well. You know, we're both motocross fans and uh, I've always got something to say about the sport, whatever subject you want to bring up. <laughs> Let's do it. Great to have you on, Rob. Thanks, James. You are listening to the British Motocross Show. British.